Get ready to listen, learn, and earn CE hours. This podcast features content from an accredited CE activity provided by Calibri Healthcare. Visit EliteLearning.com slash podcasts for accreditation and disclosure statements and instructions on how you may be able to earn CE credits. Hello and welcome back for episode three of our podcast, Women's Reproductive Health Issues in the Face of Changing Legislation. I'm Leanna McGuire, your host for this Elite Learning Podcast by Calibri Healthcare, and we are happy to have Erica Springer with us for this concluding episode. I'm looking forward to learning more. Let's talk about some information that's been at risk for misinformation lately. What is a topic that you've heard that has been blown out of proportion or highly misunderstood regarding abortion or women's reproductive health? As you can tell from our previous discussions, the ripple effect from this legislative change is huge. Everyone's evaluating what these changes mean for their roles in reproductive health, whether they're a consumer, a family member, or their provider. So even in the months after the Dobbs decision, there are a lot of unknowns and continued changes from state to state. When we have unknowns, we often have fear. So it's not surprising that we're getting some reactionary concerns. Mm -hmm. One concern is that care for pregnant people with pregnancy-related medical emergencies will be impeded because of fear of prosecution in states where abortion laws are the strictest. I would say the other biggest concern I hear is continued availability of emergency contraception and contraception in general. One of the things we have now that we didn't have pre-Roe versus Wade is the internet. Information travels very quickly, regardless of its validity or its safety. (laughs) Isn't that the truth? Right. Let's address some more of that, of the feedback that's been heard or that's going around the internet. There is some dangerous information out there about reversing an abortion with a progesterone type medication. Can you speak to this? Yeah. So as we discussed in our previous episode, the mechanism of mifepristone is uh, one of the medications that are indicated in a medical abortion is a progesterone antagonist. It fills progesterone receptors so that the progesterone naturally occurring in pregnancy is unable to do its job in maintaining the pregnancy. Some states have implemented regulations that require literature and counseling to accompany any abortion. And in some states, a provider is legally required to share information claiming that giving progesterone can reverse the pharmacologic mechanism of mifepristone and reverse a medication abortion. There may be some evidence that this is possible. One study that administered large doses, very high doses of intramuscular progesterone by injection to six women who had taken mifepristone, four of the six successfully carried the pregnancies to term. However, according to ACOG, they state that this isn't enough scientific evidence to support this practice because of the small sample size and being only one case study. Uh, The challenge is, the best method for providing valid evidence in medical practice are double-blind placebo studies. We can all agree that using pregnant women as test subjects when experimenting with things such as abortion medication is unethical. Right. Wow. I didn't know some providers are required to discuss certain things. That's a complicated situation. There's also information out there about vitamins, herbs, or alcohol intoxication causing a self-induced abortion. Some of this is not only a myth, but also extremely dangerous misinformation. Can you talk about this as well? First, people have been using home remedies in hopes of ending an unintended pregnancy long before Roe versus Wade was overturned. (laughs) Good point. 
Yeah, when we look at early history, this is likely how early healers supported abortion in the 1800s before the medical movement. The challenge is we don't have any large, reliable studies or significant data to demonstrate effectiveness or safety. So in general, we know that these methods are overwhelmingly ineffective and some are downright harmful. Right. So let's emphasize that. You said overwhelming, overwhelmingly ineffective and some harmful. That's an important point. Yeah, a quick search of the internet and social media reveals an extensive list of suggestions for self-managed abortion with home remedies. One general theme seems to be using substances or medications that are contraindicated in pregnancy, encouraging people to take a lot of it to end the pregnancy. The problem is, even if something is teratogenic or can cause a birth defect to a fetus, it doesn't necessarily mean that it's effective in ending a pregnancy. Wow. That's also a very significant concept to understand. Birth defects can occur without causing an end to a pregnancy. Patients hoping to end pregnancy have tried vitamin C, parsley, donkway, rose hips, ginger root, chamomile, black cohosh, pineapple, lots of pineapple, pain medications like analgesics, illicit drugs, antibiotics, birth control pills, and caffeine pills, just to name a few. I've never heard the pineapple one. The list goes on. Things like (laughs) vitamin C and excessive pineapple consumption are not known to be harmful. They're just not effective. Right. So there are other remedies like pennyroyal that have significant side effects. Things like seizure, fainting, cardiopulmonary collapse, kidney and liver damage, even death, even at small doses. It can be very dangerous. Even in restricted areas, the safest place to seek advice for an unintended pregnancy is a professional health care provider. They can review options with you and also support access to care if they themselves are unable to because of local legislation or regulation. It's especially important if you or someone you know encounters complication from a pregnancy or an abortion method. As some people may choose to search for possible options on the black market if they think they can't obtain something legally, some might consider buying illegal pills or other medications. Some might also read about purchasing medication from other countries. What are some of the reasons that this is dangerous and should not be considered? In many states, FDA-approved mifepristone and misoprostol can be purchased through telehealth and or appropriate regulatory websites. There are international companies who will sell and ship these medications to the United States regardless of where someone lives. These medications coming from other countries are not evaluated by the FDA, which means the contents of the medications are not regulated according to U.S. standards. The FDA actually has specific warnings regarding obtaining mifepristone from other countries on their website and has a resource, Be Safe Rx, to help guide consumers on identifying safe online pharmacies in the U.S., not just for abortion medications, but all pharmaceuticals. Many in healthcare may already understand the concept of U.S. standards for production of medications and FDA approval, but it's such a serious issue which can have significant consequences. Let's emphasize that again. Every medication is not the same. There can be dangers for buying medications which are not regulated or held to certain standards for their manufacturing. One more question about self-managed abortion. Can you weigh in on the healthcare dangers of trying to take matters into one's own hands and self-manage an abortion in general? Even if one has heard a story about someone who did this and survived, besides immediate dangers that you have already talked about, what are some of the long-term risks? Keep in mind that self-managed abortion does not necessarily mean illegal or unsafe. 
So with the availability of abortion medications through telehealth and legitimate online pharmacies in some states, medication abortion can be self-managed if the patient desires. Self-managed, as when someone tries to use home remedies, some may attempt multiple methods or they might combine methods. Mm. What this does is it may delay access to methods known to be effective, like a medication abortion. The other concern with these methods is if someone attempts a self-managed abortion and has a complication such as hemorrhage, excessive bleeding, infection, it may delay seeking care and in areas where prosecution's a concern. Ah. Historical data suggests that those with the fewest resources are most likely to attempt some type of physical means of ending pregnancy, such as inserting an object into the vagina or the uterus. As far as long-term complications, physical attempts at self-attempting to end a pregnancy carry the greatest long-term risk. Basically, the uterus or the womb is sterile. The vagina is not. Hurting things that pass through the non-sterile vagina into the uterus can cause an infection that could lead to sepsis, scarring of the uterus, future fertility issues, even death. Mm. This is especially true if the person who has attempted a self-induced abortion undergoes complications and they're afraid to seek care. Right. Those are good points. From another perspective, some reactionary information out in the world may concern the topic of how women who have a serious or life-threatening situation during pregnancy will not be able to get care if they're in a state which has made elective abortion illegal. Some have tried to say pregnant women or mothers will be placed at risk. Can you address this? Yes, this is definitely something we heard talked about a lot when the overturn first occurred. The concern regarding ectopic pregnancy or bleeding and infection in early pregnancy in which the fetus may still have cardiac activity. It's been made very clear through an executive order and the Department of Health and Human Services that providers are protected in providing emergency care to patients with dangerous medical conditions related to pregnancy. I will admit that as a provider, it does add an extra level of decision-making in determining that threshold of emergency or life-threatening if practicing in a highly regulated state. Some states, including Texas and Oklahoma, the states have actually even added further description to their recently passed law to specify that the word abortion does not describe a procedure to remove a pregnancy that is spontaneously incapable of continuing to term where a physician believes the mother's life to be in jeopardy. Okay, good clarifying information. Another source of misinformation is that there are no dangers or risks at all from elective abortion. While many may have had abortions managed by medical providers and healed, there are many women who report infertility issues or uterine scarring, particularly after surgical abortion. As part of informed consent, what are some of the possible complications that women should better understand who aren't aware of any possible risks? There are risks and dangers to every medical intervention as well as risks to not undergoing some medical interventions. Hmm. The risks of a procedure for elective abortion are the same as risks for a procedure for a patient who had a missed abortion. It's extremely important that patients are fully informed prior to consenting to any procedure. The overall safety of medication and procedural abortion is very, very high. And we know the greater the gestational age, the greater the associated risk of termination procedures. So let's talk about the risks. Okay. Yes. Please educate us about that. So with medication abortion, there are common side effects like gastrointestinal upset, nausea, cramping, bleeding. Even with the lack of instrumentation into the uterus, 
infections can still occur. There's also a chance that it doesn't work and the patient remains pregnant. That's true. There's not a 100% guarantee. When we talk about procedure abortion, the risk during the actual procedure includes perforation of the uterus and laceration or physical damage to the cervix, the opening of the uterus. Each of these occur in less than 1% of procedures. It's low. This is in addition to the risk of infection and bleeding. Longer-term risk after the uterus is instrumented with any type of curating procedure include forming of syncytiae, little scar tissues. This may or may not affect future fertility. Another potential condition which correlates to uterine procedures like DNE is called Asherman. It's a rare condition where the buildup of adhesions in the uterus and it can cause pain, changes in menstrual patterns, and fertility issues down the road. If someone has a failed medical abortion and then they undergo a procedural abortion, their risk of complication increases. There's also discussion of risks associated with retained fetal bone fragments after procedural abortions. So overall, abortions are safe, but not without any risk at all. There's evidence that risk increases when performed by unqualified persons in areas with poor access to legal abortion. Data from older sources may support evidence of decreased fertility or even infertility related to prior abortions. Oftentimes, abortion safety balances this data with the risk of complications and even death from childbirth. I want to mention mental health as a potential outcome in patients undergoing abortion as well and acknowledge the controversy surrounding this correlation. So even if we had excellent research infer cause and effect of abortion on mental health, we really need to acknowledge patients' individual reproductive choices and offer respect, support, and individualized care surrounding their emotional health. And I'm so glad you brought up mental health and emotional health. Deciding about reproduction and pregnancy are definitely serious decisions. Whatever a person decides about reproduction and pregnancy, even including matters such as adoption after birth, these can be emotional and life-affecting decisions. Just because a decision is made, it doesn't mean the matter is over or not to be discussed again. People still need love, support, counseling, help, etc., right? Absolutely. And ongoing throughout their entire health lifespan. Right, exactly. I've heard commentary about how changing legislation on abortion may change the practice of nursing. However, most states don't allow advanced practice nurses to independently provide abortions. And registered nurses care for persons based on the need of medical and nursing care, not based on whether they agree with political, religious, ethical, financial, or other personal decisions. Do you think nursing practice will radically change based on legislative changes regarding abortion? Let's start with registered nurses. So according to the ANA, nursing must provide comprehensive and unbiased education as to all options with regard to sexual and reproductive health. However, nurses always have the right to refuse to participate in sexual reproductive health care based on their ethical grounds as long as patient safety is assured and an alternative source of care has been arranged. This has been the case and aligns with what I've seen in practice too. If a nurse is morally or ethically opposed to elective termination of pregnancy, I have seen them switch assignments with another nurse to avoid interruption in the care of all the patients. I don't see any radical change here with actual abortion. Nurses also play a huge role in education and advocacy for patients. 
As the details of these legislative changes get ironed out, prevention of unintended pregnancy becomes an absolute priority. We need nursing support in this area for sure. Right. Very good and practical clarification of information. Thank you for that. So as for advanced practice nurses or APNs who carry a broader scope, as you said, they're already quite restricted in many states from performing and participating in abortion services. In states taking a significant stance on protecting reproductive services, we may see an increase or broadening of the scope to support demand as patients cross state lines for services. In restrictive states, the role of prevention for all healthcare providers will be really imperative. Nurse practitioners, certified nurse midwives, physicians assistants, along with our physician colleagues, all have a role to play in the prevention of unintended pregnancy. We may see shifts in where providers choose to practice also as a result of legislation. Advanced practitioners will play a role in continuing to offer primary care resources as well. Yeah, that's a good point. As far as misinformation, it might be beneficial to note that incorrect information can be spread with and without bad intentions. Some misinformation may come from persons who don't intend to cause harm at all. Misinformation, intended or otherwise, can sometimes cause terrible consequences. It's important to check resources and not blindly accept information for information's sake. I think you would agree, right? Absolutely. Please remember that despite changes in legislation, medical providers' beliefs and values have not changed. We continue striving to take excellent care of our patients despite this ever-changing landscape in healthcare. When seeking information, always consider the source and try to look at the whole picture behind the data. Okay. And can you give us a couple of examples of good sources? Absolutely. So we talked a little earlier about Gutmacher and KFF. They both are excellent resources for providers. ACOG, the American College of Obstetrics and Gynecologists, have both a provider-facing side and a patient-facing side. The CDC websites and their contraceptive information is very, very important for it. There's another website called Plan C, which is an online resource for medication abortion. And they are very up to date as to which states they can provide telehealth and ship to and really structuring that whole primary, secondary, tertiary prevention of contraception, emergency contraception and abortion, medication abortion access in a safe way. Fantastic. Thank you for sharing that. And thank you so much for addressing some of this serious information and misinformation that we've talked about during this episode. If we don't talk about these topics and help to educate patients and clients regarding facts, sadly, many people can be influenced negatively by the latter, right? Absolutely. The conversations are important, especially in topics that can be emotionally charged or political. Sometimes they get avoided. And I'm really thankful to have this opportunity to talk about it in a really objective, factual way. Yes, it's great. And this has been an interesting conversation for sure. We've navigated some controversial and emotionally charged topics without becoming partisan or biased. And we just wanted to have a chance to discuss issues at the forefront of healthcare today based on facts and objectivity, which you've certainly brought to the table. I can see where more awareness and conversations are needed to help combat misinformation or a lack of awareness in our rapidly changing world, for sure. 
Another sincere thank you to you, Erica Springer, for sharing your knowledge with us today. We very much appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. And this is Leanna McGuire for Elite Learning by Calibri Healthcare. This podcast featured content from an accredited CE activity provided by Calibri Healthcare. Visit EliteLearning.com slash podcasts for accreditation and disclosure statements and instructions on how you may be able to earn CE credits. Take your learning to the next level by subscribing to more podcasts on compelling healthcare topics.